Good afternoon, brothers and sisters and those joining us online and also visitors. A hearty welcome to you all. It's such a blessing that we may be here again to join in worship of our triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. May the preaching of the Gospel direct our hearts and minds in faith and in trust to our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, and cause us to live our lives for his praise. This afternoon, the Lord willing, the worship service will be led by Brother John DeVos. May God strengthen him in his task. Before we commence worship, let's join our voices together and praise God by singing Psalm 56, verse 4. Sisters, please rise and let us worship our God. We begin this worship service by confessing our dependence on the Lord. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Amen. Let's now respond to God's greeting of grace by singing praise to him from Psalm 53, verse 1 and verse 2, and after which please remain standing while we profess our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith with the singing of hymn 1.
let us now come before our God in prayer and ask for his blessing as we worship him. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that as a gathering of believers, we can meet you here for a second time today. After a week of work or even holidays, we are blessed to come into your presence and to seek your face. It is here, Lord, where we are blessed to hear your gospel preached, where we can learn about the scriptures, where we are convicted of our sins and can be encouraged by your grace. Lord, help us to treat attending church as the most important part of our week. May all of us here be able to say with the psalmist, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. As we are about to open your word, Lord, as well as the catechism, we ask that your spirit softens our hearts to receive what you have to say to us. Learning about our depravity and sin is not easy for us to hear. And yet we know that we must be deeply conscious of our sin so that we can see the depths of your amazing grace. As we heard this morning, we ask that we may not find ourselves complacent, but realize that our repentance must be real. We ask that you use the sermons of today to fill our hearts with a deep desire to serve you and be filled with the joy of your salvation. We pray that you may hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen. The sermon which I'll read this afternoon was prepared by Reverend C. Bauman, an Emeritus Minister of the Smithfield Reformed Church, one of our sister churches in Canada. And the scripture reading that he has chosen for us is Leviticus 4 and Luke 6. So we'll first turn to the Old Testament. Leviticus 4, verse 1 to 12. Page 97 of your guest Bible. So Leviticus... 4 verse 1 through 12. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally, if any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it to the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove from the liver, sorry, from the kid, with the kidneys. Just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails and its dung, all the rest of the bull, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. So the rest of that passage gives instruction as to what the others of Israel are to do, when in the words of verse 2, they also sin unintentionally. So we now move on to the New Testament. And we will be reading from Luke 6. It's on page 1025 of your guest Bible. And we are starting at verse 27, not at verse 28 as is on the board. Verse 27 of Luke 6.
So Luke 6, verse 27. But I say to you who hear, so this is Christ speaking, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend it to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So let us now sing from Psalm 38, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4.
now turn to Lord's Day 2, the text for the sermon. Find that in your psalm books on page 518. It's the first Lord's Day on the part about our sin and misery. Lord's Day 2, from where do you know your sins and misery? From the law of God. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in a summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Can you keep all this perfectly? No. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbour. In response to the sermon, we will be singing from Psalm 135, verse 1 and verse 9. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the confession of the church in Lord's Day 1 is so delightfully rich. I, you and I, actually belong to Jesus Christ with all of my being every moment of every day. That's so because of his gracious sacrifice. He paid for my sins with his precious blood and so freed me from Satan's slavery. And now I'm so much in his care that not a hair falls from my head, and no flu comes near me without the will of my heavenly Father. And when he permits something I consider negative to come on my path, he causes it to work for my salvation. Even more still, he assures me of eternal life and makes me today eager to live for him. It's all so rich, so wonderfully rich. Here's the question for today, brothers and sisters. Do I deserve this wealth? To put it differently, why have I received this wealth? Is God actually impressed with me? In Lord's Day 2, the church repeats in our own words the answer scripture gives to that question. It is not a nice answer but it's one we need to confess, simply because the Lord has given it. And it sure makes us appreciate the more how much the gospel is a treasure. So the sermon has been summarised with this theme, the Lord showers his mercy on the loathsome. There are three points, the first being the offence of Lord's Day 2, the second, the message of Lord's Day 2, and the third, the gospel of Lord's Day 2. So then, the offence of Lord's Day 2. John Kelvin begins his institutes of the Christian religion with the comment that nearly all the wisdom we possess consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. Of the four books of his institutes, Kelvin devotes the first to explain in what we know about God and then moves on in the second book to make clear what we know about man. Amongst Kelvin's students were two men who wrote the Heidelberg Catechism, Caspar Olivianus and Zacharias Ursinus. Yet when these men set out to write the Catechism, they did not follow up the rich confession of Lord's Day 1 with an explanation of who the God is to whom we belong. They leave that for later in the Catechism. But they followed Lord's Day 1 with a confession about man. Specifically, who are the people the Lord Jesus Christ has saved and made his own? Why would the authors of the Catechism set forth first what we need to know about man? knowledge of self. Ever since our fall in paradise, people like to hear positive things about themselves. It's true of each one of us, 
None of us prefers criticism over praise. It's very much in the air around us. You do a Dale Carnegie course, he is an American writer and a lecturer for personal development. So you do one of his courses and you're meant to walk away more confident of what you can achieve and so of who you are. You do a character development course for work or a relational development course. And the idea is that you learn to pick out the talent hidden within so that you can function more productively in your work. You've got it, you can do it. And those involved in the field of education are advised to be careful in giving criticism because criticism can have negative psychological effects and make the student feel bad about himself and so become unproductive. Parents are told the same. Don't criticise your children. It's in the air around us. We're meant to feel good about ourselves. And so to say things to each other that make the other feel positive. This state of affairs in our society leads to becoming hypersensitive to anything that smacks of criticism and a reflex reaction against any criticism that comes our way. Now, it is undoubtedly true that we need to take seriously what our chief prophet and teacher told his disciples in Luke 6, verse 31, do to others as you would have them do to you. Inasmuch as we appreciate compliments over criticism, we do well to speak positively to each other and so edify. There is no place for talking the other down, neither to his face nor behind his back. We are, after all, all in the same boat, all people together. And so it will not do for any of us to set ourselves above the other and to tell him how bad he is. But that kind of sensitivity does not mean that we should refuse to embrace what the Lord has told us about ourselves. He, after all, is God and not man. And so he has the authority and the right to say what we don't like to hear. And it's a simple fact that the Lord God has some very negative things to say about the human race. Our culture grooms us to not want to hear negative descriptions of ourselves and that fits perfectly with our fallen nature. We don't want to be criticised. As Kelvin says, nothing pleases man more than the sort of alluring talk that tickles the pride that itches in his very marrow. But we need brothers and sisters to leave our cultural baggage behind and our fallen preferences as well and dare to listen humbly to the Lord's own description of the nature of the people he has saved. I mention this up front because of the aversion we have to the material of Lord's Days 2, 3 and 4. In this section of Sin and Misery, you'll find nothing positive about yourself, nothing that respects our preference to feel good about ourselves. That makes us touchy about what a sermon on Lord's Day 2 might say and possibly quickly critical of what we hear. Yet, Lord's Day 2 is your own confession, congregation, and it is contrary to my calling and my oath of office to soften what this Lord's Day actually teaches us. So I urge you to not tune out from the sermon because of the Lord's Day's offensiveness, nor to be critical of what you'll hear. Instead, ask yourself why the Lord wants you to know and confess such distasteful material about yourself. And yes, there's good reason for it, as we'll discover shortly. What then does the church actually confess in Lord's Day 2? And that is our second point, the message of Lord's Day 2. Lord's Day 2 wants to give us a sense of how great our sins and misery are. As Lord's Day 1, question and answer 2 puts it. To give us this sense, Lord's Day 2 draws our attention to the law of God. This phrase, the law of God, sends our thoughts to the Ten Commandments. That, however, turns out to be too limited an understanding of this phrase. 
The authors of the Heidelberg Catechism, as mentioned before, were students of John Kelvin. Kelvin defined the term, the law of God, as the form of religion handed down by God through Moses. That, we understand, is a reference to the five books of Moses, known as the Pentateuch, or, as the Hebrews called it, the Torah, a word that actually means law. We need to think, then, of the content of the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so, yes, that includes the Ten Commandments. But it also includes things like the instructions God gave about the building of the tabernacles, the sacrifices the people had to bring there, the various ceremonies of washing that belonged with the tabernacle, the sorts of foods the people could eat, and so much more. There were countless commands in this Torah, commands that the priest had to expound to the people as revelation from God about himself and about the people he had adopted to be his own. Well now, what did the law actually teach about people? What knowledge of self did God give to Israel and so to all of us through the law? Consider here what had to happen in the tabernacle. We realise that God's coming to live with his people in the tabernacle was a marvellous thing. But the fact of the matter was that God lived in the Holy of Holies in the back of the tabernacle while the people could come no closer than the courtyard outside of the tabernacle. The point is that there was a distance between God and the people. Between the two parties was an altar upon which the people were to make their daily sacrifices. And this altar, congregation, is instructive for the material of our Lord's Day. How so, you ask? Try to picture what things look like around that altar. Endless animals were killed there. And that's to say that blood flowed freely. The colour around the altar is red in various stages of decay. The dead animals were skinned, degutted. Parts of the animals were burnt in sacrifices. There was then a particular smell around the altar and it's the stink of death, of exposed intestines, of burning flesh. It's the sort of environment that will attract a lot of flies. And in a word, there's something distinctively offensive about the look and the smell of the tabernacle. And make no mistake, some in Israel will have taken offence at the blood and the smell and the flies of the place and concluded that this is no place for those with a queasy stomach, let alone for the children. So, how were the priests and the Levites to explain this part of the requirements of the law of God? Why should the people see the grossness of the tabernacle, or later, the temple? The priests' congregation had to explain to the people that here was a picture of how Israel was offensive to God. Yes, atonement was possible, and it happened through the shedding of blood. That is a glorious gospel. But built into the ceremony that assured Israel of forgiveness of sins was a lesson on grossness, specifically on how disgusting Israel's sins were to God. The people received an indication of that grossness from the smells and from the sights of the tabernacle. Here is something of the material of our Lord's Day from the law of God Israel and we receive a sense of how great our sins and our misery are. That is, how offensive our sins are to God and so also how deep our problem is. The Apostle Paul caught the lesson of the law pointedly in his words to the Romans. Chapter 3, verse 20, through the law, we became conscious of our sin. Chapter 4, verse 16, the law brings wrath. Our sins turn God's stomach, are sickening. One can say, okay, here is every incentive then to do your best to obey God's law, so that in turn you're not so disgusting to God. 
We'll serve no other gods. We'll kill no one. We'll never commit adultery, and so on. Very well, the intention is good. And on a superficial level, one might even say that we keep the law quite okay. After all, the law does say not to kill, and we haven't shot anyone. And the law does say not to commit adultery, and we haven't done that with the neighbour. And the law says not to steal, and we haven't robbed a bank. That can give us confidence that we're pretty reasonable people after all. And so need not come to often, so often into the stinking air of the tabernacle. We do well, beloved, to notice question and answer four. The question the catechism asks here is this. What does God's law require of us? The answer here is not reasonable obedience or doing your best or something like that. The Catechism instead directs our attention to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Jesus' emphasis on love, we need to know, is nothing new. For the Lord God had pressed this upon Israel many times. In Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength. Deuteronomy 10. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him. Deuteronomy 11. So if you faithfully obey the commands I am giving you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, and also as to loving the neighbour, Leviticus 19, love your neighbour as yourself. Again we say, loving God and neighbour isn't all that hard. It's something I'm working on all, at all the time and it's coming along okay. But notice congregation what is missing from Jesus' summary of the law. There's reference to loving God and there's reference to loving the neighbour. But there's no command to love oneself. Why is that? And that's because the default focus of each person after the fall into sin is self. I am important to me. I don't like it if you don't respect me. I don't like it if you laugh at me. I don't like it if I am not accepted, not comfortable, not happy. That's why we don't like criticism. We don't like being corrected, because I am right to begin with. It's worship of self, infatuation with self. I am important to me. Then, sure, I'll love God and I'll love the neighbour, but repeatedly the love I show is motivated by selfishness and what is in it for me. Now, Jesus says... The way you want others to treat you, the way you love yourself, that's how you are to love others. The point is not that they serve you, the point is that you serve others. To say it differently, others are not there for you, but you are there for others. And the same in relation to God. He is not there for you, but you are there for him. This is material that makes us squirm. Look more carefully, brothers and sisters, into what the love for neighbour looks like that God commands, let alone the love for God. And here we need to consider the passage that we read from Luke 6. There was a body of thinking in Jesus' day that interrupted God's instruction from Leviticus 19 to love your neighbour as yourself, to mean that one was to love him if he loved you. But if your neighbour was an enemy, you were allowed, say these teachers, to hate him. It's a way of thinking that we can relate to. But Jesus, in Luke 6, corrects this line of thought. He is emphatic. I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, 
Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. So here is the question for us. How does your enemy know that you love him? And put differently, it happens to each of us in its time that we feel very hard done by, that someone has truly hurt us and maybe did so deliberately. The result is pain in our heart and some very raw feelings. The temptation is to go and punch him or to burn his house down or run a nail along the paint of his car or ruin his reputation or something similar to that. But you don't do that because you know that is wrong. It's against the law of God. Then you may well congratulate yourself at your obedience to God's law in the face of such abuse. But here now is Jesus' point. What does love for your neighbour look like in the face of such abuse? Jesus explains, do good to those who hate you. The whole law of God is caught in the one word, love. And love looks like something. Love means you go out of your way to do good to the one who hurts you. And so there's the question. When was the last time you actually repaid evil with good? Can you recall to whom it was? That person who hurt you last month or last year, have you gone out of your way to do good to him? Have you dealt with him the same way you would have him deal with you if the shoe were on the other foot? Jesus continues on. He would have us pray for those who mistreat us. And that's something we could bring ourselves to do if we can ask God to please curse them. But the Lord's instruction is the opposite. Verse 28. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. He would have us ask God to pour goodness on those who hurt us. And so there is that question again. When did you last pray for God to please bless those who hurt you? Again, the Lord tells us to offer the second cheek to the one who strikes the first one. Our natural inclination is to hit him back and harder than he hit us. In our culture, to fail to defend yourself is a sign of weakness, and none of us wants to look weak. But there's Jesus' instruction, be the least, turn the other cheek. Now when was the last time any of us did that? Jesus' instruction continues, and so the questions must too. What is the point? We fail here so badly. If even church people can't get it right, how much less will others? It's as the Catechism puts it in answer three. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbour. That's the divine revelation about human nature. And it's a revelation we resent, one we don't want to hear. But since it's God's revelation, the church obediently repeats it after God. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbour. And that is the bitter message of Lord's Day 2. It puts us straight back into the stink of the tabernacle and its terrible message, I am offensive to God. Is there, then, no gospel at all in Lord's Day 2? That is our third point. The gospel of Lord's Day 2. For yes, certainly, gospel there is in Lord's Day too. Who is it that's making this pessimistic confession about human nature in this Lord's Day? Or more precisely, who is the person of question and answer five who dares to utter those damning words, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbour? Is it the neighbour across the road, or perhaps the Dalai Lama, why, congregation, the person who makes the terrible confession of Lord's Day 2 is the very same person who said in Lord's Day 1 that I belong to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. How can this be so? 
Shall someone whose words and conduct require all the blood and gore of the Old Testament tabernacle claim the glorious confession of Lord's Day 1 as true for himself? Shall someone who can't love God or neighbour confess that he is God's property? On what grounds does he dare to do that? There's the gospel of Lord's Day 2. Though God demands perfection, I am not able to love God or neighbour properly, even in a small way. The Lord God has nevertheless made me his own. On what grounds did he do so? On the grounds that Jesus Christ obeyed the commands of God perfectly. His obedience was not something outward or something superficial, as in, he never killed anyone, he never robbed the bank, he has never committed adultery. But his obedience reached to the core of the law, for he loved God and he loved neighbour with all that he had. On the cross of Calvary, his God rejected him, and yet he continued to serve him and trust him with his whole being. God's covenant people Israel hated him so much that they demanded his crucifixion and put so much pressure on the authorities that they complied. Yet Jesus Christ did not pray for a curse to come down upon his tormentors. Instead, he prayed for holy God to please bless them. Luke 23 verse 34. Forgive them, he asked for they do not know what they are doing. And after he prayed for them, he did not ignore them, but made a point of laying down his life as an atoning sacrifice for the benefit of those who now hated him. On the day of Pentecost, some 3,000 of his persecutors were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. But on the day of Jesus' suffering and death, they had not yet repented, and yet the Lord laid down his life for them. That surely is love. We were not amongst the crowds of Jerusalem crying out for Jesus' crucifixion, but our depravity is as complete as was theirs, and so we are as deserving of God's judgment as they ever were. Yet the Lord has given us life, has made his covenant of grace with us, has adopted us to be his children, has claimed us for himself so that we can place on our own lips the glorious confession of Lord's Day 1. But we shall not, as question answer 2 makes clear, we shall not enjoy the wealth of this comfort if we don't come to grips with the greatness of our sins and our misery. And that's what Lord's Day 2 wants to help us to do. In a culture that says we're meant to be positive about ourselves, the church repeats after God how thoroughly and totally depraved we all are, how undeserving of God's goodness, how lost in ourselves. Though we find the confession embarrassing and difficult, we'll make it gladly. Because we realise that if God loves so deeply people who stink so much, his love must be exceedingly profound. And in this broken life, that's the kind of love that gives reassurance to sinners. Amen.
our prayer this afternoon, we will give thanks that this Sunday, Brother Dathan Plater is being ordained as a Minister of the Word at the Church of Elm Creek in Canada. We will also remember our brother Rod Yongling, who is scheduled for surgery this week, so we'll pray for a blessing over this. Almighty God and loving Father, we stand in awe of your love for us, despite being loathsome sinners who repeatedly sin against us, we are humbled to hear again of your great gift to us, freedom from sin and renewal through Christ. How blessed we are to know that we confess our sins, you take away our guilt and pour out your forgiveness on us, your children. And as we are about to sing at the end of this service, we acknowledge with thousands of Christians who have gone on before us that those who trust in you are well protected. Help us to have upright hearts who can shout joyfully your praises. For how can we not? For your steadfast love surrounds us, your people. Lord, we pray that the message we heard today may strengthen our faith so that as we go into a new week, we may be able to be encouraged in our walk before you. Thank you for not leaving us to walk this life alone, but rather, as promised, you have poured out your spirit to assist us. May he work mightily within us so that we may be light bearers in a world that is so darkened by sin. As a congregation, Lord, we are blessed to support mission work in Papua New Guinea. Help us to be cheerful givers financially, but may we also remember them in our personal prayers. We have heard of the challenges our mission families have been confronted with yet again this week, and we thank you for providing godly men and families who desire to live in this third world country to spread the gospel of hope. Especially today, our thoughts go to our brother Ben Vanderkamp, who is able to celebrate his birthday. We know that each year given is a blessing from you, and we ask that you be near him in his task as a husband, a father and a support worker, so that he can carry out his roles to your glory. We understand that on these celebratory days, distance from loved ones can bring challenges, and so, Lord, we ask that you surround them with your nearness. Lord, we also thank you that today, Brother Dathan Plater can be ordained as a minister of the word in Elm Creek, Canada. We were blessed to walk alongside him in his year of internship, and so we too rejoice with the congregation there for this blessing. We pray that you may give to our brother much wisdom as he begins his task of shepherd. Help him to be a faithful, humble servant of yours, guiding and teaching, fellow believers in your word. We pray, Lord, that you may bless them as a family too, so that they may be praised in their walk of life. Lord, we pray also for our brother Rod Yongling, who is booked to have surgery this week. We ask, Lord, that you will provide our brother with peace. We ask that you may be near to him and that your word may speak to him. From Philippians, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And Lord, we pray that you may guide the hands of the doctors. We also bless him in the time of recovery. Lord, we pray for us as a vacant congregation. We know that we have been blessed to sit under the preaching of Reverend Poppy for many years. And we pray that in your timing, you may provide us with a shepherd and a teacher Give to the calling committee wisdom and discernment as they are tasked with finding another shepherd for us in Southern River. Dear Lord, as we close our prayer, we join our voices with David. Blessed is the man whose trespass is forgiven, whose sins are covered in the sight of heaven. Amen. So the offerings this afternoon is to be received for the mission work in PNG. And following this, we will stand and sing our closing song, Psalm 32, verse 1 and 5.
receive God's blessing and go in peace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.